You're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNL and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. This is a special web version of Friday's Louisiana Considered because we had some interesting technical uh, difficulties at the top of the show, which prevented my voice from going out over the air at the top of the show. So we're going to bring you the rest of the show. But so we're going to start with the answer that Stephanie Grace was giving when I asked her about what were the key races and constitutional ballot questions that she is paying attention to. So here's Stephanie answering that question and then the rest of Louisiana considered. There are eight constitutional amendments on the ballot that's statewide. The one that's kind of most interesting to me is one that basically asks voters to um, say that slavery is not acknowledged in the Constitution. And the thing that's interesting about it is the author of the uh, legislation that put it in on the ballot wants you to vote against it because it turns out it was badly worded. It was badly drafted and it would have the opposite effect. It would basically say slavery, involuntary servitude is allowed or could it could be interpreted that way. So, um, you know, that's kind of a, a little, a, you know, weird story out there. There's a city charter amendment in New Orleans, which is pretty interesting. That is to um, allow that basically give the city council authority to approve most major mayoral appointees, people like the police chief and department heads. That's not something that happens now. We have a system where the mayor really has a tremendous amount of power. The council is saying, you know, more oversight would be good. A lot of this stems from the kind of fights we've all witnessed between Latoya Cantrell and the current council. It would actually apply not to Latoya Cantrell because it wouldn't take effect until the next mayor is in. But I think the argument they're making is that, you know, look at what happened. We could have we could have done better with some more oversight in the appointment process. And really it would be it would be kind of a, a shifting of um responsibilities. You know, we have such a strong mayor system. The mayor, this council has very, you know, limited but defined areas of power, including over the budget, which we're actually going to be hearing a lot about in the next month because the budget is about to come out um, and land use, things like that. But, you know, the kind of government argument is that we should have, you know, more of a balance of power between the executive and legislative branch. Of course, the backdrop is LaToya Cantrell and the current city council and a recall drive going on and all of that. Right. And and Stephanie, uh, in about a minute, looking at the national picture, mm-hmm. you know, if the House, if the Senate changes, I mean, mm-hmm. what are your early thoughts on what that could mean for Louisiana? Well, um, if Republicans take over the House, Steve Scalise is majority leader at least. You know, there is a scenario where he could be speaker, although Kevin McCarthy seems like he's holding on and trying desperately to hold on. Um, But obviously, that's an enormous position of power. In the Senate, if the Senate goes Republican, we have two members who are kind of rising in seniority. They could find themselves in um, powerful positions. Bill Cassidy could be in charge of the committee that oversees healthcare. Of course, he's a former, he is a physician. So that's an area of incredible interest to him. Um, Back on the House, Garrett Graves is rising very quickly through the Transportation Committee. So, um, again, if there is a control, you know, right now we only have one Democrat and Democrats control both houses. And it's Trey Carter, who is not who has not even served a full term. So he's not on the seniority in the seniority picture right now. But if Republicans take one or both houses, Louisiana will be. Hmm. 
And and Stephanie, obviously, we're also watching the the governor's race for next mm-hmm. year. Landry's hopping in. So that's also just another fun thing that I know many folks are watching. Right and now. there are rumors all over the place about who's going to get in, who's going to get out. I think, you know, we're a year out, but we're kind of into this governor race. That's really the next significant election. And it's hugely significant. All right. John well, Bell Edwards, of course, is term limited. All right. Well, Stephanie Grace, we're going to have to wrap it up there again. Thank you um, so much for, for joining us on Fridays and on, on every Friday. Uh, Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNL and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. Louisiana is often closely associated with France due to its sizable French-speaking population and Acadian heritage, but once upon a time, the area was actually a Spanish colony. New Orleans, the Spanish colonial period, spanned four decades from the late 18th to early 19th century, and in that time, a culture emerged that is as rich and diverse as the population that lives here today. Now, the historic New Orleans collection in the French Quarter is honoring the city's Spanish influence with a new exhibition, Spanish New Orleans and the Caribbean. Alfred E. Lemon, the director of the historic New Orleans Collections Williams Research Center, spoke with Louisiana Considered's managing producer, Alana Schreiber. Here is that interview. History lesson, 1763 marked the formal beginning of the Spanish colonial period here in New Orleans, but Spanish presence in the region dates back even earlier. So what was it that brought Spanish colonizers to the city and what did their reign look like? You know, New Orleans was founded in 1718, and we were very distant from the other major French colonies. Imagine someone from Louisiana trying to venture up to frozen Quebec or Montreal during the winter, and Saint-Domingue, which of course was incredibly rich, was closer but it was played by a dangerous voyage where one would encounter pirate ships. So way before we became officially Spanish, the French colonists began to develop relations with especially Havana and Veracruz. They depended upon Havana and Veracruz for a variety of needs. The fact is, is that Governor Bienville was so grateful to Havana and Veracruz that he actually sent a delegation to Mexico City to officially thank the Viceroy for the assistance that they were giving to New Orleans. So, you know, we have this sort of dilemma. We're a city with a French name. We're a state with a French name. But we've been linked to the Spanish Caribbean. Well, what happens is France saw that they were going to lose Louisiana. And so, as the French Louis XV and the Spanish Carlos III were cousins, Louis XV wrote a wonderful letter beginning, My dear brother and cousin. And he proceeds to outline the situation. 
and he offered Carlos III, Louisiana. In the exhibit, we will have that very letter. It sounds like there's some nepotism even happening here. So, Alfred, I know that the time period was marked by this dramatic increase in slavery in the U.S. and in Louisiana, Uh, But also, New Orleans did see a large growth in the population of free people of color. So what did these communities of formerly enslaved or freed people of color look like? The Spanish view of African-American slave and Native American slave was very different. Let's say a slave owner wanted to free one of his slaves during the French period, he would have had to have got official permission from the government. In Spain, it was very different. A slave could sue his master for mistreatment. A slave could purchase his freedom from his master. And if a slave had been cohabitating with a Spaniard, they could claim their freedom. So you see, it was very different. And they felt that it was much more economically viable to have free people of color than slaves. And, for example, if you look at the case of the Spaniards and Native American slavery, We have a document of a young Native American being sold to a Frenchman right before Louisiana became Spanish. We have this wonderful document where Bloody O'Reilly, who's perhaps the most famous of all the governors, outlawed Native American slavery. And this was consistent with Spanish policy going back to the early 16th century. We are speaking with Alfred E. Lemon, director of the historic New Orleans Collections Williams Research Center. Well, you've mentioned a lot of the artifacts that people can find, but tell us about some more. I mean, you have more than 120 maps, books, paintings. So what are some of the things that viewers can find inside? You know, we have tied I was just mentioning the Spanish Enlightenment. And one of the things that you will be able to see is they were actively collecting prehistoric artifacts in Louisiana. And one of the things that's in the exhibit is a tusk of a predecessor of an elephant more than a million years old that the Spanish brought back to Spain to be in one of their cabinets of curiosity. At the same time, you look at the impact that Spain had on New Orleans building code. For example, there were hurricanes and two major fires. People would be shocked to find out that the Spaniards were actually purchasing fire trucks from Philadelphia 
and bringing them here as part of their campaign to fight far. That just is it's just an example of how rich and unknown this history is. While the Spanish colonial period formally ended in Louisiana in 1803, the influence has remained. So what exactly is the legacy of this time period and how can we still see Spanish influence here in the city today? Well, first of all, by the survival of French culture, the Spaniards published the vast majority of their broadside in French, the first newspaper published in New Orleans was in French, but during the Spanish period. And of course, they wanted to populate Louisiana in order to better defend it. Now, the King of France was known as his most Christian majesty, and the King of Spain as his most Catholic majesty. That meant that they were actively recruiting Catholics to come and reside in Louisiana. Few people realize the vast number of Acadians that came here during the Spanish period. It's sort of a curious situation. The Spaniards are in many ways responsible for the preservation of French culture in New Orleans, in Louisiana. Wow, that really proves that New Orleans is a place not only where so many different identities and diverse populations can exist, but also where they work to uplift one another. Alfred E. Lemon is the director of the historic New Orleans Collections Williams Research Center. You can visit the exhibit, Spanish New Orleans and the Caribbean, from now through January 22nd. Thanks so much for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNL and WRKF. After two pandemic and hurricane-related cancellations, HOMA's spookiest event returns in late October, with a goal to raise awareness for Louisiana's disappearing coast. Named after the legendary bayou creature that has the head of a wolf and the body of a human, the Rougarou Festival is a staple in South Louisiana that celebrates the area's folklore and culture in true Louisiana fashion with a costume parade and contest, Cajun food and storytelling. Here to give us a preview is our Coastal Desk's Kezia Setiawan. Kezia, first of all, thank you for being here on Louisiana Considered. Thanks for having me, Patrick. All right, Kezia, let's start with the the big basic question. What is the Rougarou? What does it look like? Uh, You know, just give us the the cool backstory here. Yeah, so the Rougarou is... The legendary bayou creature that lives in the swamps of South Louisiana, it has the head of the wolf and the body of a human, quite terrifying. Um, I know that in older generations, parents would tell their kids not to go out late because the Rougarou could get you. Um, but in more historical roots, it's tied into Cajun folklore and culture as French settlers 
came into this area back in the 17th and 18th centuries. Kasia, there are a lot of fun things planned, um, but there is also a serious angle to the Rougarou Festival. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the Rougarou Festival has historically um, been a fundraising festival for the South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center, um, which aims to raise awareness and educational opportunities about Louisiana's disappearing coastline. And Kezia, we're, we're going to play a clip from uh, Jonathan Ferret, who is the South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center, about the event. So look, if the Rougarou doesn't have a place to live, then neither do we. Yeah, so that's South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center Executive Director and Event Organizer Jonathan Ferret. Um, compared to previous years where the event was held downtown, construction for the new nature exhibit was completed this fall. Um, The space boasts a half acre of man-made wetland and an education pavilion. So outside of the festival, it will be used to help provide programming for local kids, such as school field trips, classroom visits, and summer camps. Um, It's really a crucial time. Jonathan told me how the center uh, was really a space for kids to learn and grow as they grow up in some of the most vulnerable areas due to climate change. It's our responsibility to make sure that the children that grow up in Terrebonne Parish and coastal Louisiana, for that matter, have the knowledge that they need to either live successful lives for as long as they can in the area, or at least be able to weigh the risk of living in a coastal community Kezia, tell us how the festival is trying to be more environmentally friendly. We know in New Orleans uh, when there are questions about plastic beads and, and how, to make new, uh, how to make Mardi Gras uh, more of a green festival. How is the Rougarou Festival making sure that it's more environmentally friendly? Yeah, I'm really excited personally about these environmentally friendly measures, uh, especially since Homa as a city itself doesn't really have a dedicated recycling system. So to be able to see this festival um, take steps to be zero waste and use compostable or reusable materials when they uh, give out food. Um, Folks can bring in can or glass bottles to redeem for tickets to then buy other things at this festival. There will also be the RuCoin, which is a play on Bitcoin. Um, that's a wooden token thrown at, a per- at the parade on Saturday night that can be later redeemed for free frozen yogurt. And Kezia, uh, you also spoke with the Rougarou Queen, Celeste Roger, about the environmental changes uh, for the festival. So we'll play that clip right here. It also gives us that opportunity to advocate for our community because it's not just where you live. You know, it's it's our surrounding land, our bayous, our waterways. Yeah, so that's Rougarou Queen Celeste Roger, and she said she's really excited to see these environmentally friendly measures happen um, at the festival, especially to mitigate the waste that usually occurs. Um, She said that, like, yeah, we typically see this type of thing, uh, especially after Mardi Gras. So um, being able to implement this and have attendees sort of take away a greater appreciation for the land and the community that they live in is always a good thing. 
KZF finally give us the details for what people need to know about the festival, when it starts, uh, you know, just what do folks need to know? Yeah, so the Ruguru Festival starts tonight at 5 p.m. and goes until Sunday. It will be at the South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center and surrounding grounds on 132 Library Drive in Homa. Entry to the festival is free and food and merch will be available for purchase. Uh, be there for the pumpkin patch, uh, lighting, Ruguru Queen dancing, just a lot of fanfare and fun activities. And we hope that you all take a greater appreciation for the environment as well. All right. That's Kezia Satyawan from our Coastal Desk. Thank you, Kezia. Thanks so much. And that's going to wrap up our show here on Louisiana Considered. I'm Patrick Madden. We want to thank all of our guests that appeared earlier, including Stephanie Grace. Today's episode of Louisiana Considered was hosted uh, by me, Patrick Madden. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Uh, you can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's also available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And Louisiana Considered wants to hear from you. Please fill out our pitch line to let us know what kinds of story ideas you have for our show. And while you're at it, fill out our listener survey. We want to keep bringing you the kinds of conversations that you like to listen to. And you can also go to our websites at www.org and wrkf.org to catch up on old episodes of Louisiana Considered and to check out all of the day's top stories from our newsroom and from NPR. And you can also sign up for our newsletters there. Again, go to www.org and wrkf.org. Louisiana Considered is made possible with support from our listeners. So thank you and have a great weekend. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouse's.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.